Privacy.com, the company's officers trust with their online privacy. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. We have a very special Memorial Day episode. We have three veterans from three different war periods. A World War II veteran who fought at the Battle of the Bulge. We're going to talk to John about that survival. Then we're going to talk to Barry. He was in the Vietnam War. And then he became a cop, protecting his community. And then we're going to transition to Ken. And he was in the Cold War. And when he retired, he became a cop. And now he has a nonprofit that helps transition soldiers who protected the country and now protecting their community as a cop in a very special Badge Boys Memorial Day special. After this, a word from our sponsor, Officer Privacy. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. OfficerPrivacy.com is offering a special deal for listeners of this podcast. This is a great deal. Go to OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. Their team of current and retired law enforcement officers will remove your information from the top three sites that are showing your home address, phone number, and more. Sign up at officerprivacy.com forward slash BB. You can also follow the link on our show notes. During these challenging days, we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice, but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten. And that's what the Arizona Fallen Hero Memorial Writers Organization is all about. Each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at ArizonaFallenHeroesMemorialRiders.org. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. As promised, we have a very special Memorial Day episode where we have John Skeen, a veteran of World War II who fought no less than the Battle of the Bulge. Now, this particular interview was two years ago. He was going to come back on, but he had some health issues. We're hoping he'll come back uh, to talk about some of the other things. But uh, this is the episode that we talked to John about his time uh, in the Battle of the Bulge. Here it is. Well, like I said, we have a most, most special Memorial Day episode. We have World War II veteran John Skeen, 100 years young, having been shot, Purple Heart, war hero at the Battle of the Bulge. And we have to thank for this uh, a, uh, my retired police partner from the late 80s, Barry Momrose, who himself is a Vietnam veteran. So I say to you, John and Barry, and I, I'm going to say five words. I've said these words so many times, but never as important as now. Thank you for your service. You're welcome. Now, John, let's get started with you, my friend. Um, gosh, I, I can't even begin to imagine what you've gone through, the, the greatest generation, truly, that kept us safe from the most horrible threat that we've ever experienced. And we've experienced some bad things with 9-11 and so forth, but the Nazi threat was um, like no other. Um, I would love to hear you tell us about some of those huge, uh, heroic, iconic legends that we hear about, like, for example, General Patton. Uh, Having seen the film, Jersey Scott, great portrayal. Um, and there's that big flag behind him as he's up on that pedestal talking. Had you ever had the opportunity to hear from General Patton? Uh, no, sir, not directly. Uh, a lot of uh, information came through on Bolton down to the uh, front line, but uh, I saw him one time. Well, that was when the, the Battle of the Bulge was going on. 
We were in a southern part, and a lot of people didn't know, but there was a pincer movement. One was north through Bastogne, the other one was south through Alsace-Lorraine and Strasbourg, and they hoped to, uh, one south swing north and one north swing south and trap the Seventh Army, which I was in, uh, and uh, they, it was a battle of the Ardennes, you, you know, the, the uh, battle of the Bulge, that was part of the battle of the Ardennes. So you actually saw General Patton, was he like in a, uh, in a vehicle, was he in a tank? Can you kind of describe that moment? I saw him. He was in a Jeep, and uh, the horn was blowing, and we were on the road on our way. We were being, uh, I was in the 275th Infantry of the 70th Division, but during the wartime, everybody was under stress, and as often they would co- call a regiment or a battalion and attach them to another division for uh, support. And I, I remember the 7th Division, and we were attached at that time to the 3rd Division. And the only time I saw uh, the general was the, we were on the road moving up about three days before Christmas. And uh, a horn was blowing, and here we all stepped aside, and he came, here he came through, and he, he waved at us on both sides real close to him. But that, that's the only time I had contact with him. But I did have a, uh, on two occasions contact with General George Marshall. Oh, very cool. Tell me about that. Well, we were in the POM uh, exercises. That's preparation for overseas movement down in Missouri, getting ready to go to Europe. And it was in a final phase and was going through these exercises. And so happened that General Marshall and some other staff members came to observe and see our, uh, our fitness for the preparation for the trip overseas. So, uh, lo and behold, I was the uh, uh, non-commissioned officer in charge of the foreign range that day. And the Jeep pulled up with long, three or four others behind and our division commander and stepped aside. He came over and uh, the uh, uh, officer in charge introduced me to him. And he, in our conversation, he asked me how the fellows were doing pretty good. And he said, uh, could I have a demonstration of the one? So I, I called one of the fellows over, and one was uh, a hit pretty good shooter and previous uh, uh, previous. Uh, he was a pretty good shooter. Yes, and so he said, "I said, well, how do you want him to shoot standing?" He said, "Oh, put him in a prone position." So he got down <laughs> in a prone position, and there was ten. He had ten rounds in the in the uh, be, uh, the uh, rifle, and he cut loose at eight of them. He put eight out of ten in. He circled, and General Marshall said, boy, oh, boy, the Bosch better be, be better watch out. If, if fellas could shoot like that, said, we're going to take care of the war in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then that night, he had a, a meeting with non-commissioned officers at the non-commissioned officers club. And so it, uh, most of the fellas were uh, platoon sergeants. And he made a remark, which has stayed with me forever. He said, uh, largely the, the success of the, uh, the war and the campaign that you're in and the, and the uh, uh, fighting that will be done, said, uh, the platoon sergeant will play the most important part, he said. said, you know these men better than any of the officers or anyone up the line. So you've lived with them. You've, cut, you've been with them since they came in. You know about their families. You know their ambitions and hopes and desires and so forth. And said, uh, you'll be a key figure in the, uh, uh, when you go into combat. And I thought that was a, quite a remark to be made. Very very wise, because even with police departments, it's the sergeant that knows the officers, the, you know, the boots on the ground, as, as you were, um, that knows his men. And if the sergeant buys it, the men will buy it. And uh, did you find that to be true? Oh, yes, yes. Now, tell me about how you first heard that you're going to D-Day. I mean, was that something that was held secret, hush-hush, that you'd find out hours before you're going or even on the, on the way there? Or did you have uh, a few days uh, prep time to know you're going to this in- immense, most heroic, hugest battle of all time? Uh, no, we didn't have any advance information at all that we'd be a part of the uh, uh, Ardennes campaign, which would be in the northern part, 
which included Bastogne. As I told you before, we were in the southern part. We were fighting, we'd just come, been in the uh, Alsace-Lorraine, the mountains of Alsace-Lorraine. And uh, so uh, uh, whenever the uh, uh, the uh, situation got so bad and they needed troops, they pulled us out of the 70th and attached to the, 200, to the 3rd Division. And so we hit the road, and for two or three, Two to three days, I don't remember quite. We we walked and rode part of the way and walked part of the way until we got a, a little town. I don't know, St. Pete or something. Little town, you don't, you don't remember the names of Sure, them. sure. We didn't get inside. My outfit and unit did not get inside Bastogne. We got within range of the artillery in it. So I wasn't actually in the town of Bastogne. It's funny how you mentioned Bastogne. I was with the 101st uh, Airborne when I was in the military, and the yeah. uh, the tradition and the heritage is really deep because of the battle in Bastogne. Where uh, can you tell me what the uh, general said when they asked their, for their surrender? Do you remember the words that the uh, general said? Oh yes, that's it. It was, <laughs> it was <laughs> common uh, knowledge among all the troops that if he could respond that way, then we had no other choice. We, <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, nuts. <laughs> I love that, nuts, nuts, I love that. Tell us about what it was like, the Battle of the Bulge. How long did it last? What was the weather conditions? If you could paint a picture with your words of what it was like at the Battle of the Bulge. Well, as you know, they had the coldest winter in Europe in 50 years, during the 44, 45. And we in the line, the infantry, we were fighting in the mountains of Alsace-Lorraine through December and January and on February. And we were fighting the 6th SS Mountain Division. These were the crack troops of Hitler. They'd fought in Norway and Sweden and Russia. And so they they corralled most everyone that had uh, uh, the uh, had been in the uh, other uh, fighting against Russia and some of the others. Uh, uh, countries, and so they were determined to break through the mountains of Alsace-Lorraine to get back down to uh, around Strasbourg, where they'd be able to maneuver troops and be able to heavy equipment and things of that sort. But uh, uh, we fought there in the mountains, and and, uh, one of the uh, most unusual events ever happened. We were on the road moving up this mountain pass uh, to relieve another outfit at a town called Bitch, B-I-T-C-H-E. It was at the head of the mountain. It was an international town, and students came from all over Europe and other places to uh, study there. And so we were moving up this mountain pass to relieve this outfit. Well, what happened? The, uh, the uh, Germans... Uh, bypassed Mitch and caught us on the road and ambushed us. And so uh, it was about 9 o'clock at night. We were supposed to be get there about 11 o'clock, but we got shot up all to pieces and lost, lost a lot of men and so forth until we fought our way back and got on a hillside. We were, we were on this mountain hill for three days. Actually, part of the time, our own units didn't know where we were. And several other units along the line, too, ran into practically the same thing. But we lost so many men after three days up there. Whenever we got relieved, we carried uh, men off the hillside. We lost about as many men from uh, frozen feet, frostbite, as we did from the casualties from the Germans themselves. But one of the most unusual experiences, I went back to uh, Germany in 1945 for the 50th anniversary of World War II. The Germans were holding their reunion. The SS, 6th SS Mountain Division was holding their reunion. And so uh, in between, we'd made a ring. They had sent some people over to our reunion. And we, uh, we have our own website and so forth. And we've had communication back and forth. And so they made it a, a purpose to... Uh, hold a reunion at the time when we were returning to Europe. And so they came down in some buses, picked three uh, three buses, I think, loaded, and we went back up into this mountain, this big chalet, and it was unloaded, and we were told to line up in a line, and 
uh, they opened a big double door, this uh, chalet, and we we walked through this two big long tables, went from one end to the other. And so an American soldier sat on one side, and one of the German soldiers, these are the soldiers that we fought against there in the mountains. Surreal. One on the other side, all the way down. But the uh, the uh, uh, speaker for the uh, event, we learned later, was a colonel of one of the outfits that we fought against there in the mountains. And uh, it was unusual. He, when he took the podium, he just stood there and he looked and he looked and he looked. I didn't think he's ever going to speak. Uh. But uh, finally he said, uh, said, gentlemen, said, who would have ever believed this? Who would have ever thought it could possibly happen? Said, 50 years ago, there were, we were in the mountains trying to kill each other. And now here we sit today breaking bread together. I'll never forget that. Geez. Wow, I got chills. I'm serious. I got chills listening to that story. I was, at first, I couldn't get past the uh, funny name of the town, Fitch. I really enjoyed that. Uh, and then, of course, it, was, it went so sad with your officers getting shot. Uh, can you tell me about your experience um, having been shot? Okay. Uh, the Stars and Stripes referred to us. You know, that was a paper published worldwide uh, among the troops. And the Stars and Stripes, we fought so long. We, we took the town, then we lost again, and then we went back. They called us the Sons of Bitch. <laughs> yes, that's what you referred to the, those in Bastogne as the Bastogne Bastards. Bastards, they called them. Yes. <laughs> so, well, uh, as far as, as the wound was concerned, we had uh, moved up to a line of departure one night to this big hillside, and uh, it was, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, it wasn't a steep hillside, but a sloping one, and uh, at top of it was a forest, a lot of trees and so forth, and we were, we were to uh, jump off at daylight and get and clear these woods to the town on the other side. It was a sort of a crossroad town, and uh, I think it was a junction as three leading roads came in, and they, they, they thought that, or we were told that it was a supply uh, point for the Germans, and we were to take that town after we cleared the woods. Well, uh, we first day, we got about halfway through, and the morning and second morning, as we started to move out, uh, we were pinned down by machine gun fire, and the company was held up. Well, uh, uh, we could see the bunker. I guess we were probably within 50, 75 yards from where the bunker was. But the bunkers, well, they weren't concrete bunkers there in the woods. They were. Uh, they dug down about three to four feet, and they built up three or four feet with logs. Huh. And then on top of that, they throw, they'd throw leaves and branches and everything for the roof. Well, Captain said, well, we had a critique there with the platoon leaders. And Captain uh, uh, questioned the fact of how, what we were going to do. We arrived at the situation that uh, uh, they had cleared an area for the field of fire. And the, and the trees and things had cut down was piled up along the left side between where we were and where the bunker was. And the uh, captain said, well, I was I, I had a good relationship with the captain. Uh, I found out uh, after we lost our first captain and he replaced him. Uh, he, the night he came up, he introduced himself and asked our, each one of us about our background and so forth, and I found out that the, I had been in Alaska on a Nile with his brother. He <laughs> said, I'm Joe Donahue, I'm Joe Donahue, I'm from New York. And I said, you know, uh, Captain, I said, I I, uh, I knew a Donahue uh, in uh, uh, Alaska. I said he was with the 198th Coast Artillery, and I remember it so plain because we used to call him a dollar ninety eight outfit. <laughs> <laughs> But he said, well, that was my brother. So every time something came up or something, Captain called for skiing, skiing, lead a patrol, do this, do that. <laughs> Small <laughs> it world. Out, it turned out to be a disadvantage. Yes, anyway, it was. <laughs> anyway, we came to the conclusion that we could work our way around the left side of all that uh, bushes and trees that was piled up. And I, he said, what do we need? I said, Give, I'll need a bazooka man and probably a grenade uh, rifle 
and another person. I said, I think that four of us be be plenty. And so we had walkie-talkies, and I said I would keep in contact. So it took about 15 or 20 minutes for us to work our way uh, alongside this uh, piled-up brush and so forth. And we got up to not exactly opposite, but at, a, at an angle. And so I told the bazooka man, I said, okay, uh, our, uh, we could see the barrel of the machine gun out of the bunker slot. Wow. And uh, so he, he fired his first round, and it lit uh, short and bounced over top. <laughs> we had three rounds is all we had of the bazooka shells. So the other fellow with him was carrying it. And so he took the second one, and he hit that thing dead center. You should have seen it. It looked like an explosion of logs flew everywhere and a brush in the air. And it was just like a smoke screen almost. And so when that happened, uh, I said, okay, let's move. And so we charged towards the bunker. And uh, I got hit, but I didn't know at the time it was hit. It was so cold and everything until I I felt uh, later, just a few uh, minutes later, I felt a warm blood. And my glove, we were wearing gloves, it very cold. And uh, in all excitement and everything, it, it was a, it's actually uh, uh, lucky. It didn't hit a bone, went through uh, my arm, between my wrist and elbow. But anyway, uh, we charged the bunker, and out the back side ran three soldiers. And so we cut down, the other fellow and I cut down, both of us started firing at the same time. We was up fairly close. And so one fell well, face down when they got up to, to where the, where the uh, wounded, the fellow had been shot. And the other German was sitting there, and, and he, was, he got a hit in the knee, and he was crying, screaming around, hollering. And the other face down, but the third one got back, got free and got into the woods. I took my, uh, the one laying face down, I took my rifle, got underneath and flipped it over. And here it was, a woman. She had a long German coat. Oh, my God. Later, when we found out, after we cleared the woods and took the town, the burgomaster and everything said it wasn't uncommon. Said these women would go out during the night, take food and stay with the troops in the bunkers, and then come back in before daylight. And so uh, that was something that's been indelible in my mind all my life. I guess. Oh, man. <laughs> Bless your heart. Wow. Wow. I did not expect that to go in that direction. That's, that's what happened with your injury. Um, did you, when, when, you well, did, when you did realize, did you go to the medics? Did you get off, off, off the battlefield? Well, uh, yeah, uh, we waited, uh, uh after we, we took the town, town, uh, the aid man wrapped the bandage around and put the sulfur on the wound and wrapped the bandage around and said, and we went on and took the town and then, uh, the, uh, uh, aid man, uh, got on the phone and everything. And, uh, so uh, a Jeep came up and there's two others that, uh, had, uh, uh, been hit, not seriously any, any way. There's three of us, eight us on the Jeep and took us back to the battalion aid station. And I didn't think it, was, it didn't look too bad to me or anything, but they said, well, we're going to have to send you back to the division hospital. It says a gunshot wound, of course, and the shrapnel said the shrapnel, the heat and everything sort of catarized, but the gunshot wound, you know, I would get an infection. So we got to take that, take you back and let them clear it all up. And so I went back and incidentally, when I, we got in about midnight, I woke up the next morning and here was, a, I found out of my old uh, 101st Airborne. <laughs> they were all around me. <laughs> but uh, one boy was in a bunker in, a, in a, the bed beside me. There's three of us in this room. And he had, had lost, he lost a leg just below his knee from a, a, a mine. And they had a thing at, at the end of the bed, like a goal post. And I can remember the knee they had, uh, some way uh, pasted a, a cover over the end and they put had a knot in it and they had a rope that went out and had a pulley over the crossbar at the end of the bed and it had a weight on it. And that weight, you know, pulled and stretched the uh, uh, skin over, I guess, over the knee to grab, the, you know. Wow. And uh, 
he was just a young guy. I, tell you, I didn't even think he was 18. But anyway, the funny part about it, he would slip down in his bed and let that weight go down on the floor, and the nurse would come in, and she'd just get all over him. <laughs> <laughs> but a ghastly scene. I seen a whole ward after I got up and started moving around. Incidentally, I was there not quite three weeks, a little or two weeks, uh, because normally they said you'd stay a month, but everybody was, uh, you know, under strength and they needed manpower and it's going back, especially infantrymen. They went back and picked up people from other outfits and had no experience at all as far as. Uh, now, I heard uh, Barry was told me that you were offered a, a, a field grade promotion. Uh, after the shooting, did I understand that correctly? Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, I lost my uh, uh, officer, uh, and uh, I'd been leading the platoon I think for probably a month or more. And uh, so, uh, Captain mentioned the fact that uh, uh, you, you should be commissioned. I said, uh, uh, "Forget about it. I'm not worried about it." But anyway, to my surprise, one morning, the jeep pulled up and and had two other uh, soldiers. And the captain said, John said, you're going back and get your commission. So you're going back to uh, uh, Nancy, France, in a, in a, in a, not far from Paris. So I said, well, okay. So I got in. So we went up that evening. We had a hotel across the room, across the road from where the uh, place was that we'd be interviewed. So that morning we went over and uh, I was one of the first ones called in. Uh, uh, Corporal told me, come on, said, follow me. And we went down a couple of three rooms and went in and there was this colonel behind the desk and he had a, he had a folder there and had some sort of a resume on me. And he said, I, something about the fact that I don't, I don't need to question you when you're going to be a uh, an officer said, you've been acting for one for a long time. I said, yes, sir, that's right. He said, well, he mentioned some other thing. And he said, well, you'll be, I, I was from Company I, 275th Infantry. Well, this colonel said, well, you're going to Company C, 274th. I said, say that again? Yeah, I said, we'll assign you to Company C, 274th. I said, forget about it. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to, I'm not leaving my men. I said, I'm, I've been with these fellows ever since they came in. I hardly knew their left foot from their right foot, and I know all about them and everything, and they depend on it so much. I said, forget about it. He said, oh, you may not be offered again. I said, well, that don't make any difference. I said, it's me. So I, I, he said, boy, you were the first one. This is unusual. never turned out to well, yeah, those, uh, you get to know, well, you have to, you know, the brother system. You, yeah. you say they're closer than a brother. Yeah. After you spend days and nights and mornings and evenings and everything with these men for so long, it just depend upon you. And uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, be recognized as someone who was interested in it and do anything for them. So. I love that story. I absolutely love that story. We're almost done. I have one last question for you. Uh, I understand that when um, uh, the war was over, everyone kind of went on their own way, uh, but they were asking people to sign up for reserves. Can you tell me that story real quickly? <laughs> okay. All right. We came in and uh, went to this place to get our discharge papers and to get our transportation uh, wrapped uh, and so uh, this guy was sitting there. He was a he was a sergeant, and he said, uh, uh, "We're signing up men for the reserve." Said, uh, uh, "You're from West Virginia, aren't you?" I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, uh, you want to sign? You want to sign here?" He had some papers there. I said, "Sign." I said, "What for?" He said, "For the reserve. You'll be putting in the reserve." And I said, nothing doing. I said, I'm not t- putting my name on anything that the Army has to do with the, with the Army. Yeah, get of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, try, to, try to keep you in. <laughs> you, I, I, I cannot. 
thank you enough, John. That was uh, I just r- literally the best half an hour I've ever spent. Uh, I can't thank you enough, sir. And I, when I say thank you for your service, uh, I know uh, um, uh, well, a very grateful nation you. thanks you, sir. Yeah. All right, you're welcome. And, and Barry Momrose, who I didn't even get a chance to say hi to. Uh, Barry, thank you for making this happen, my friend. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I'm Pete James, a retired law enforcement officer who has a passion for the safety and security of those in the profession. OfficerPrivacy.com offers a full range of privacy services that removes your personal information from the internet so you and your family can feel safe and secure in your home. OfficerPrivacy.com will keep you safe. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. You know, I just have one word for listening to uh, John, World War II veteran, Battle of the Bulge. Uh, riveting. It was just riveting listening to him talking about that survival and the cold and being shot and, you know, going into a bunker. Oh, my gosh. It was truly, truly. And you know who I have to thank for that? Retired officer Barry Momrose. And he is now our next guest on Badge Boys. He is a, uh, a veteran of the Vietnam War, as I had talked about, the three different I call them war heroes, and I know Barry will um, absolutely disagree with that, but uh, these people absolutely sign on that dotted line knowing they were going into the shit, literally. And he got out of it, he became a cop, and went from protecting his country to protecting his community. So without further ado, I want to introduce Barry Momrose to the show. Barry, thank you, my friend, for joining us. Well, thank you very much, uh, Darren. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you again. Briefly, I joined the Army in 1963. Uh, the Vietnam War was going on, and there weren't very many jobs available, so uh, I had my pick. So I joined and um, for three years, and I had uh, two children, and... I got a uh, a bonus, a reenlistment bonus of $10,000 to reenlist, which I did for six years. And then my orders came for Vietnam. So I was uh, in the uh, 97th Artillery Group. It was a uh, missile headquarters group in, uh, situated in Tonsonute with um, – Hawk, uh, H-A-W-K missiles. Um, they were spread throughout the countryside, and they were there for uh, a protection from an air threat in the north. So I stayed for nine years, and just before I got out, we had what we call Project Transition, which uh, to qualify you and to move on into civilian life, to re-educate you, you could choose a several programs they had. I wanted to be a police officer. Uh, they didn't have that, so I took uh, postal training, post office training, and had my name sent to Phoenix, which is where I wanted to go. And at the same time, uh, the Phoenix Police Department was recruiting from out of state, and I was able to have them send the paperwork through uh, the police or the army. And I took the test when I was in, still in the army, and it was sent back. And I got on uh, uh, the police department in 1972, and uh, was able to. Trans, transition right from the army into the police department, which I did for, uh, well, 19 and a half. I bought a year out, a half a year. But uh, in all that time, I was a police officer. Uh, we used to have uh, officer friendly and go to the school. And go. we went to a high school in uh, Phoenix, uh it was called Carl Hayden, and we used to stop there and talk to the 
kids. And my biggest uh, thought was if I could do 20 years and make the difference in one person's life, it will have meant everything to me. So years later, when I retired to Maine, I got a uh, text from somebody, uh, a gal that worked in the I Bureau, and she said, are you Barry Melrose and the same that used to come to Carl Hayden? And I said, yes. And she said, you made a difference in my life. So, <clears throat> excuse me, with that, uh, after retiring to Maine, then I got on the uh, Reserve Police Department in uh, Ellsworth, Maine, for five years. And I just enjoyed every day. I, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to get put on my uniform and go to work. So uh, it was uh, probably the best. I never considered it a job. And I, and I got paid to do something I wanted to do all my life. Even though I started at 31, uh, it was a little difficult with physical training. But I was in class 97 and... Uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time, and I enjoyed every every moment. You know, you talk about uh, changing one life. I can tell you there's so many lives you changed. Uh, having worked with you, my friend, we were partners, and I was a young buck, uh, didn't know my uh, head from my ass, quite frankly, and you were the senior officer helping me as well as other rooks, and uh, so on top of the citizens that you helped during your 20-year career, you also were a great guy, an uh, incredible resource. And you stayed in your patrol your entire career. Is that, is that right? Yes, yes. And I, 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 I uh, wanted to go to motors, but it didn't work out. So, you know, at, uh, at my age, uh, I, was happy, I was happy to be out. Uh, uh, we had... Uh, I say officer friendly and then commu- uh, community, I believe it was community policing, uh, where you got out of the car, walked around and talked to people, talked to business owners. And uh, it was, it was, uh, it was just a great time. I, 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 I never thought it would ever end. It was like a dream and to live that dream and receive pay. It's, it was uh, unbelievable. I, I, I just feel sorry for people that, go to work every day and they're not not happy but if you it's a bonus to get paid for something you always wanted to do and it's something I always wanted to do my whole life it's just I felt bad they had to start so late but nonetheless I got to do it at another police department and my wife um, was a nurse uh, at St. Joe's and then when she came up here uh, she was a nurse in a hospital up here and then I was a reserve police officer in Ellsworth, Maine, and I got to put on a uniform and do it all over again. So you know, I'd like to was, take you back to the uh, days in the, uh, the Army, because you, you did nine years there, and you talked about you had the pick of the, of the jobs you wanted. Uh, what kind of MOS, military occupational specialty, did you get into? And the second follow-up question to that is the only thing I know about the Vietnam War is what I see on in movies, you know, the movie Platoon and so forth. Was it a lot like that? Because listening to, to John talk about the Battle of the Bulge, it reminded me of those, you know, um, you know, Saving Private Ryan kind of movies that were kind of, you know, the, 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 the frantic pace of war, you know, the hurry up and wait kind of aspects. Um, so two-part question. One is, what did you do in the Army, your, your MOS? And the second, again, is, it, was it like the films? Uh, my MOS, is, I think it was like a 151. It was uh, operations and intelligence specialist. Uh, so uh, I, I worked right in the headquarters with the general, and uh, we did go out in, into the countryside uh, occasionally, but uh, my job primarily was w- with the headquarters, uh, with uh, the staff, uh, and uh, I didn't get in the country that much. We, Like I said, frequently we'd go out, but... Uh, wasn't on like patrol or anything we but when i remember arriving on in long bin uh when, when i first got there and uh mortar rounds were coming in 
and we were just had tents, and uh, it was it was pretty terrible to to go through that experience, but not not as bad as a lot of people had it. Uh, but uh, in the, the countryside was pretty pretty decent. Uh, we didn't go out into the jungle and patrol or anything. Uh, we had to maintain the headquarters. And when you talk about, you know, the jungle and it was, it, is it very reminiscent of those films? Was it hot and muggy and sticky? And, and, you know, what was it like the day to day, if you will, and just the environment, not even talking about people shooting at you, but just the, the climate yeah. itself. Yeah. Well, the humidity, the humidity and the temperature matched like a hundred or 110. And it, it was, all you have to do is just go, go out, just be outside and you were drenched. It, it just, it just, it just takes the life right out of you. It, it was, uh, I can remember, um, going when I first arrived there, stepping off. Of course, when you get there, the buses are all nice and air conditioned. You, you step out and, soon as you step out in that heat guys were just passing out it was it was horrible but you know i i didn't i didn't regret a day uh that i was there and um i as i look back on it um i i wouldn't trade it for the world but i i've done a lot of reading since um i've come back a, a book for any Vietnam veteran that, that's listening or has been there, uh, I, I would uh, challenge you to read a book called Kiss the Boys Goodbye. It's about our country leaving in the neighborhood of a thousand um, POWs behind, knowing that they were there and the government did nothing to get them out. And from what I read and understand, they're probably either still in North Vietnam or in Russia to this day. They're going to be they're going to be seventy five, eighty years old. If there's probably twenty five to fifty at least still alive, but I mean they're never coming back because they're brainwashed. But it's it's just uh, it's just pathetic to think that our country would leave them behind, uh, which they did. It's a fact. I. You can read the book, and it's it's just it's hard, gut wrenching to know that's the way it was. But you know, when I think about Memorial Day, uh, that kind of says it all. You know, that book's title, "Kiss the Boys Goodbye." It, it really is yeah. a. Yeah, and, a, and it's, uh, it, it, it's like the saying: uh, "All gave some gave all gave some some gave all." The ultimate sacrifice. Uh, you know, You're if, right. If, if you've never. Uh, been to see the wall in Vietnam, the names on there. I challenge anybody to go to Washington, D.C., or sometimes it comes mobile to different communities uh, to see that wall, and uh, you just break down in tears. Not, not just because I was there, but it's uh, it's just it, it just uh, it just drains, takes your breath away. And, and free, you know, that's another old saying, but freedom ain't free. You know, somebody paid the price for that so, breath of air. You're so true. So true. The last question I have before we let you go, and again, thank you so much, Barry, for joining us, is how did you meet John, our uh, our, our last uh, guest from World War II? Tell us about that. Well, he, he goes to our, uh, every Thursday morning, we go to uh, Bob Evans restaurant, and there's, actually, there's two World War II guys there, and if if you've been in World War II, you're over 90, and if you've been to Korea, you're over 80, and pretty much if you've been to Vietnam, you're over 70. So he showed up one day, and I got to meet him, and he's a, a Baptist fella and uh, has a terrific appetite and drives his own car, and um, he's from West Virginia, and I asked him, uh, John, uh, what is your secret to longevity at 102? He said, number one, I never smoked. Number two, I never drank, and he still doesn't. And number three, he never ran around with wild women. And number four, 
eats all the chocolate he can get his hands on. <laughs> I mean, but dark, rich chocolate. Not the, not the Milky Ways, but the good stuff. But, <laughs> I mean, he does. People give him chocolate bars, and we go to church with him every Sunday, and he's just a wonderful guy. And uh, we have him over for dinner. My wife makes the best meatloaf in the state, so we send him home with meatloaf and uh, chocolate cake or whatever he wants. I love that story. I absolutely, and thank you so much for introducing me to him, and thank you so much for being a uh, you know, mentor to me during my career. And uh, you'll be glad to hear that we, our next guest is a, uh, also a, uh, a veteran Army. Um, we had th- three Army guys, Robin, three Armies, including myself, four. This is a, a first, because uh, usually it's always these Air Force brats. Sorry, but... That's just how I see it. <laughs> hey, now, wait a second. Speaking of an Air yeah, Force brat. I was going to say, be careful now. I'm an Air Force well, mom and Air Force for, daughter. Well, uh, thank you for having me on, Darren. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I enjoyed the time we spent together on the police department. It was wonderful. It was with for me as well, my friend. Our next guest is going to talk a little bit about what uh, you were talking about, Barry, transitioning from the Army you were looking at getting a federal job, and then you got your dream job as a cop. Well, our next guest is going to talk about 50careers.com, where he does just that, having retired. And now he helps those soldiers coming back from protecting their country, protecting their communities. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. We both signed up for the service and are so happy with it. OfficerPrivacy.com is offering a very special deal for listeners of the Badge Boys. This is a great deal. Go to OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. Their team of current and retired law enforcement officers will remove your information from the top 30 sites that are showing your home address, your phone number, and so much more. When you sign up now with our link, you'll get a free bonus mailed to you, plus your first month of monitoring for free. You don't have to be an officer to sign up. If you are a family member or just don't want your personal information out there on the Internet, you can join OfficerPrivacy.com. We've met the owner, had him on our show, great guy, and he will take care of you, I promise. If you care about your online privacy, and I highly recommend the service he provides, sign up at OfficerPrivacy.com forward slash BB. During these challenging days, we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice, but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten. And that's what the Arizona Fallen Hero Memorial Riders Organization is all about. Each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at Arizona Fallen Heroes Memorial Riders.org. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. I love that uh, interview with Barry. Uh, and again, we just had that interview. Again, John couldn't join us, but you got to hear both, you know, the World War II veteran and a Vietnam veteran. And now you're going to hear from a Cold War veteran. Uh, we have Ken Emerson in studio. He is with 50careers.com, where he connects veterans with law enforcement. Uh, it's the great transition. It's even what Barry talked about to a little bit. But I love uh, Ken's... Uh, um, Facebook and um, motto. It's uh, my personal motto is the same as my business motto: duty, service, self. Duty to God and country, service to community, and take care of yourself. So in return, you can take care of your family. I can't help but think about uh, on the uh, airplane. They always tell you put the mask on because you if, have to uh, save yourself. You first. do. Yeah. You know you want. And as cops, we're always running into the fire. You know, and uh, you know sometimes we we have to slow down and think about ourselves. So I love that motto. Uh, again, Ken uh, is a veteran in the Army from 1984-88 and the Cold War. And I kind of served during the same time period a little bit. Uh, uh, but he, he was actually in country in Germany. So we're going to talk to him about that. Then he transitioned into uh, the Highway Patrol where he was a trooper for 20 years where he retired. He stayed involved as a, a law enforcement subject matter expert. Uh, and now he, in his... Uh, third career, if you will. He has 50careers.com, which is not a uh, nonprofit. Um, it is free to the service members. However, those that want to pick up these great 
people uh, will pay for that service. And again, it's about connecting, separating military service members and veterans with law enforcement nationwide. We're talking state, county, municipal, college, university, travel agencies, does it all. So it's can't wait to talk to Ken about that. But first, Ken, I want to first thank you for being on our show and studio. I get to actually talk to someone in person. Right. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you having me in, Darren. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and also, thank you for your service. And I mean that. Thank you both for your service. Sure. Likewise, yes. Thank you. Um, tell me what was like, you know, I remember what it was like, you know, as, with the 101st at Fort Campbell and I went to Bragg. And, and, but it was always, always stateside until I had to do, you know, we had, you know, um, Grenada, but that was it. I mean, yeah, I, I'm even embarrassed to say that when you talk about people like John and, and Barry who were in World War II and Vietnam. But tell me, what was the Cold War like? Sure. So, actually, I joined the military in 1984 here in Arizona. I grew up in New York, but I grew up with a, with a military family. My father was a Korean War veteran. I had an uncle that flew gliders into Normandy in 1944. Wow. You know, my brother is an Iraq war veteran. I have a cousin that was in Iraq and Afghanistan um, in the early 2000s. So we grew up in a family. It's you know, in your blood. It's in our blood. My parents, or my, my father was also a volunteer firefighter. So when I became 18, I became an EMT, became a volunteer firefighter, ended up moving to Arizona in 83. And then right in 84, I was like, you know, it's something I want to do. My relatives have gone into the military now that I grew up with playing army with. You know, we'd actually have 22s and BB guns and go out and just have fun. So in 84, I joined the Army. My goal was to go into the Ranger unit. And I told them, look, I want to be Airborne Ranger. And, of course, I got the pitch. Look, just go in 11 X-ray. Just go in as an infantryman. In a couple of years, you know, you can, you can apply and get into that Ranger unit. Yeah, yeah easy. <laughs> yeah, it, didn't, it didn't quite work out that way. Was, so they actually attached me to what's called a cohort unit. It was something new that the Army is trying. So the individuals I went to basic training with at Fort Benning, Georgia, we stayed together my entire term. So I joined for four years. My first duty station was going overseas to the 2nd Armored Division. It's a forward unit up in Garlstead, Germany, which is up by the North Sea between Bremen and Bremerhaven in Germany. And at the time, 1984, we still had the M113 armored personnel carriers from Vietnam. Wow. And they looked like it. And, of course, <laughs> being in northern Germany, none of them had heaters. So we were constantly freezing. We would do field exercises in Denmark, in the, out in the middle of nowhere in Germany in the wintertime. And we literally froze our butts off. <laughs> so it was the Cold War in that aspect. Let me tell you, that was, it was, it was kind of rough. Um, but in 1986, 1885, 86, we transitioned from the M113s to the M2 Bradley Fighting Vehicle. And I became a gunner on that vehicle, um, became a sergeant in 1987. We transitioned from Germany to Fort Hood, Texas, and doing a, a, a rotation, a regimental rotation. So units from Fort Hood took our place in Germany. We went from Germany back to Fort Hood. So, yeah, we were part of the Cold War. We did a lot of exercises, a lot of training. We did reforgers, which is re return to Germany. So units would take off from Fort Hood, just like something were happening in the Germany. They would load up on the railheads, load up on the boats, head over to Germany, do one huge exercise, and then go back to Fort Hood. What was important about that, though, and I often think about, you know, your, your previous guest, you know, Battle of the Bulge. Right. Cow, you know, we watched Army movies growing up in Thank the 60s you. and 70s, watching these Army movies. They were my heroes, were the soldiers. And I can say the same thing with, with my relatives. Watching Vietnam stories, watching Vietnam movies. We knew from our young age that we were going to go into law enforcement. So the time I had in the military, I didn't see any combat action. Didn't even see The only thing close to came to combat was a car bomb. I was at, at Rhine Main Air Base in 1985. I was actually taking a MAC flight back home for leave, and right about two, 300 yards from our area, a car bomb went off. and uh, But... We didn't see anything. They evacuated the building that we were in. Within a few hours, we got to go back into the building, get on the MAC flight, and, and go about our business. So that was just a terrorist attack done by the Red Army faction at the time. So the terrorist attacks are nothing new. You know, they go back, you know, throughout history. But I think what's important, especially for a lot of the Cold War veterans, is the training that we provided, you know, even to the younger kids that are coming in. Because I know... When I got out of active duty in 1988, the unit stayed in Germany, and in 1990, 1991, they were tasked 
to go to Saudi Arabia for Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So those guys went over there. My particular unit was attached to a Marine Corps unit and went in there and really did a great job. Yeah, it's that uh, tra- transforming the next generation, if you will. And when, like my last guest, Barry Momrose, you know, he was in Vietnam, comes out, becomes a cop. And then I'm this young guy who he's helping out. It's all about th- passing that baton, which is kind of like what you want to do with this um, 50careers.com. But before we get into that, tell me about your, uh, how, how was that transitioning for you when you became a trooper? So let me tell you. Never once in my life did I ever think about being a police officer. I, I thought about being a firefighter. I am actually a private pilot. I have my instrument rating. So while I was still in the military, I was going to college at Central Texas College. I was taking flight lessons. I was like, yeah, I could be a pilot. You know, I knew an individual here in Arizona that was a pilot. He used to take me flying. I fell in love with it. When I got out of the military and came back to Arizona in 1993-94, I joined the Army Reserves. And in their reserve unit, I met a Sergeant Bob Stout. So Bob Stout was a sergeant. He was, at the time, overseeing the bomb squad for DPS. And at one of our training events, weekend trainings, he said, Hey, Ken, have you ever thought about being a police officer? I I think you'd make a really good DPS officer. And my agency's hiring. I think you ought to give it a shot. So I thought about it. And I was like, well, I didn't really have any prospects on the future uh, or in the near future. Fire wasn't hiring. No, fire wasn't hiring. (laughs) And I only had my private license, my instrument rating. It's still going to cost me quite a bit of money to get my commercial right, uh, commercial rating and multi-engine rating. So I got thinking about it. I was like, you know what? Growing up, my dad always talked about the state troopers in New York State. I'm saying, you know, great guys, most respect. So I took the test, took the process, and I actually got picked up. It, was, it wasn't quite that easy, though, because as I'm waiting in line, everybody's telling me, you know, We've taken two or three tests this week, you know, with Phoenix, with Mesa, and now we're doing DPS. I'm like, holy cow. And they're like, yeah, you never get through on the first try. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll just do my best and see what happens. And as I went through the OR board exam, you had three individuals sitting in front of me. They give you little, little post-it cards and say, all right, we're going to, you can read along as we ask this scenario question. And so we went through the process, and right about a week later, I got a letter from DPS saying, you didn't meet a passing score. I was like, all right, well, I didn't really expect that. So I left it alone. I started looking at Phoenix PD, looking at Mesa. And right about three weeks after that, I'm working, and my roommate, John, gives me a call at work. I was working for Delta Airlines at the time as a baggage handler at Sky Harbor. And he said, hey, Ken, you know, DPS is trying to reach you. This is the lady's name. So I call her up. It's human resources. She goes, Hey, you know, what are you doing? Are you still interested in being a police officer? I said, I am, but I got a letter that's saying I didn't pass. She goes, no, that was a mistake. We're sorry. <laughs> she goes, no, we, we had to throw a question out. That got thrown out, so you're good to go. Do you still want to do this? I was like, absolutely. So within that week, they had me do all the rest of the tests that I needed to do. That following Friday, they invited me to go to the academy wow. on Monday. Wow. So I went into Delta Airlines and said, look, you know, I appreciate this opportunity. Thank but. you so much. But... <laughs> I'm done, and they congratulated me. They shook my hand. I love Delta Airlines. You know, I'll wow. always go back there. If I ever had something happen, I would have gone back to them because other than being a police officer, you know, working for them was actually a great experience. It's interesting because when I went from detention officer and became a police officer, and they, they needed me to start the academy that very next Monday, so I had to do that same meet and greet with my boss, which was the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, saying, I'm leaving Monday. <laughs> I did right. not get the handshake. I did not get the warm, you know, goodbye. I got, if you don't make it, don't come back. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Wow. And, and so that does bring me to um, how difficult it is to leave one you know, structure, you know, like leaving the detention officer for me, in my case, and then becoming a cop. I can't even imagine some of these kids today, you know, I say kids, you know, I'm, I'm 58. So I look at these men and women coming out of the military wanting to transition into anything and how difficult it is. So is that what made you think about uh, five O careers? It was really, really being appreciative to, to Bob Stout. You know, when I retired, he was the first person I thanked, and I told him, look, I'm getting ready to retire. If it wasn't for you to say, hey, Ken, DPS is a good, you know, it would be a good fit for you, then, you know, so he was the very first person I thanked for that. And I got thinking about it. I was like, it was a great career for me, and it really resonated 
once I got into the academy, because it was military-style training, even though I went to the Phoenix Police Academy in, here in Phoenix, and it was more of a kind of like a college setting, but we were there for PT every morning, went through the college. college it was structured. College. It, was, it structured, was structured, right, but it was structured similar, very similar to the military. So I was able to excel, you know, during that, during that process, during the academy, yeah. So I got thinking about after I retired, I was like, this came to me. as like, all right, I want to do the exact same thing that Bob Stelt did for me, but on a more grander scale. I want to put that information out to all veterans that are getting out of the military that, hey, don't forgo law enforcement. So I hooked up with the Hiring Our Heroes program. It's with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation. It's called the Hiring Our Heroes program. And what they do is they hold transition summits at military bases all around the country. So when I first started the business in 2015, 2016, I started going to those events, two-day hiring events, and I would set up a table and I'd explain who I am. At one point, the, uh, the Hiring Our Heroes program asked me to be the main speaker for their event with regards to law enforcement. So I said, absolutely. So I started doing two 45-minute breakout sessions. My class was the most attended class. So I was able to do that. I went to about seven different uh, military bases around the country and set up my table. It was going really good. But then in 20, late 2016, early 2017, I had a life-changing event that I actually had to put 5.0 careers on the side, go out and get a regular job with benefits, and go back to work. But I let 5.0 careers continue to run. It's still a free service for, for veterans that are getting out there looking for a career in law enforcement. I have a little over 13,200 police agencies listed on my wow. site. Wow. wow. It gives them an idea to go, say if they wanted to come to the state of Arizona, they could bring up that state on our website and see all the agencies listed on one page. So they might see Pace and PD next to Phoenix PD, next to Peoria PD, and think, you know, yeah, I'd like to go to a small town. You know, what's Pace? And I've never even heard of it before. So they can highlight it, look it up, and say, oh, that's a small mountain town. That looks, you know, more my speed instead of going to Phoenix PD. And on top of that, as far as the, um, I, I, I guess I would call it a conduit. You're kind of like that conduit. Is there like information with um, five O careers that kind of provide them like the difference between a job as being a DPS trooper opposed to, you know, with Phoenix or, or opposed to, um, you know, some other uniform, you know, it's not all about the blue and the Brown. It can be the green uniforms you know, and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So it really depends on the soldier themselves or the person getting out of the military. What do they want to see? Do they want to work with an agency that has, you know, mayor protection details or governor protection detail with a bomb squad, a SWAT team, you know, maybe mortars, you know, where they're riding motorcycles all day long? Do they have a canine unit? Do they have criminal investigation side of it? If they want to do that, I suggest that they go to bigger agencies like a state police agency. But they have to realize if they go to a state police agency, they could potentially be stationed anywhere in the state. My first duty station was at Roosevelt Lake, which is about 40 miles outside of Globe. It was a remote duty station, and I actually got extra pay to be there. And, uh, and from leaving there, I came down to the Apache Junction area and, and worked US-60 from Apache Junction out to Superior. Like a hardship tour. <laughs> it, it, it would seem like it, but I loved it because it, was, it wasn't so much right in the city limits where you're just constantly going from one call, one crash to the next, or one broken down vehicle to the next. You could actually be proactive when you're in outlying areas like that. So I, I relay that information to the individuals. I really dig into, you know, what do you want out of this? Because 20 years will go in an eye blink. If you're doing five years, like I did, nine years with the Highway Patrol, I did three years with the gang unit, which I was attached to a Phoenix PD gang unit. So we worked together doing a lot of motorcycle gangs, prison gangs. And then I was part-time. As I was doing that full-time, then I was part-time with the bomb squad and part-time with the SWAT team. All the, bomb, all the bomb squad members were actually breachers for the SWAT team. So I was actually doing three jobs at once. And then transitioned over into a full-time position with the bomb squad, and that allowed me to just do breaching all the time or going on bomb calls all around the state of Arizona. So individuals, I like to relay that because if, if they're really looking to do something fun or something different every couple of years, you know, then get with a bigger agency that has all those options. If they really want to get down and meet with the community and work for a smaller agency, then I give them that information as well. You can, you know, a lot of the smaller agencies, they might have a SWAT team still, but usually a lot of those are multiple agencies coming together with their best selections to develop a SWAT team. So there might be a regional type SWAT team, but 
specialized units are probably not available. They, most of even small agencies will have a detectives bureau, but a lot of them won't have gang units. They won't have you know motors or anything like that. So I like to relay a lot of that information. I tell the individuals, do research in the agency that you're interested in. Call them up. Find out as much information as you can. Request to go out and do a ride-along and see if that's the best fit for you. If someone's listening now, it's in the military right now, uh, how do they get a hold of you? Is it as simple as 50careers.com, all spelt out? Um, tell us about the contact information for you. Yes, absolutely. That's what it is, 50careers.com, F-I-V-E-O careers.com. Uh, my email address, Ken at 50careers.com. I'm stationed here in uh, my business, and I'm located here in Arizona. So you can reach out to me with any questions you might have, and I'll help you out. And again, somebody could be listening because we, you know, it's podcast. We're everywhere. If they're listening in, you know, Germany, uh, and they want to get a job in Minnesota, you provide nationwide. Correct. So if they're looking at a, a job in Minnesota, and you go to my website, click on states page, click on Minnesota, and they'll bring up every agency in Minnesota on that page, and. You can highlight the name if you're interested in a particular agency. You can just highlight that name, drop it into a search engine, and they'll send you right to their website. I love it. I love it. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show, Badge Boys. I cannot thank you enough for your service, both in the Army as well as, of course, as a DPS trooper. Uh, but I really especially thank you for what you're doing now, helping that transition. Because if there's ever been a time we need good candidates, it's now. It, it's looking like there's this huge exodus with the way people are being treated. So um, I think it's a good fit for the soldiers, these men and women, to come and, and take that baton. Sure, absolutely. You know, it's, it's always a good fit. If, if you're looking for something exciting to continue on with your career, you know, law enforcement is the way to go. Well, that wraps it up for another uh, edition of Badge Boys, but a very special Memorial Day episode. I cannot thank Rock and Robin for uh, putting up with me this week on this particular show. Easy breezy, my friend. <laughs> uh, I want to give my love to uh, Jason, who could not be with us today, but he'll be back next week. Uh, Dave Pratt and Star Worldwide Networks. But most of all, I want to thank Barry and John and Ken for their service. And I want to thank you, the listening audience. So until next week, stay safe. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys. Heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Batch Boys.